It's time to make the dough rise, the financial podcast with Brian Doe. It's time to make the dough rise. Once again, Walter Storholt here alongside Brian Doe, certified financial planner at Livingworth Wealth Advisors, ready to continue our series on the Bermuda Triangle of Retirement, part two today. We're going to be talking about interest hikes. But before we get to all of that, Brian, what's cooking in the oven today for you? Uh, Nothing really in the oven, but uh, it (laughs) is Master's Week here that I guess that kind of tells when we're recording this, yeah. but uh, yeah, big deal around here for sure. It's uh, It's been a fun last couple of days. You know, I'm I'm a UNC grad, so Carolina was in the in the national championship game, college basketball, just last night, and uh, we're recording the next day. Just couldn't quite eke out the win, tough one, but then we mm. turned the page to Masters Week, so I know in, in, you know, in Georgia, like, everybody's excited about that for sure, and not just Georgia. I mean, everybody's excited about that around right. the country, Brian. So No, but, but geographically, they end up here, and we, we get a lot of traffic staying here and you know, coming to golf, they'll shuttle down to Augusta for the uh, master sessions and yeah, a lot of activity. Got to love this time of year. People getting excited, just that beginning of spring, a little bit warmer weather on the way, all that good stuff. So it's a fun month, April, and uh, we are certainly in the thick of it as we record today's episode. And glad to hear you well. I had some pizza last night, Brian. It was uh, it was actually not uh, not bad. It was not. Hang on, hang on, hang on. People use the term pizza loosely around me, so mm. define that. So it, it was grocery store pizza. All right, all right. <laughs> <clears throat> moving on, moving on. <laughs> But it, it, I'm it just was, kidding. It wasn't. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't. It wasn't bad. But now that we're talking about pizza, I'm, I'm really wanting to try some of your pizza because it probably would have blown out of the water what we had. Yeah. Well, once you try it, though, it's going to be tough to go back to that grocery store pizza. Mm-hmm, it certainly is. All right, Brian. So let's dive in today. We're talking about the Bermuda Triangle of Retirement, folks. If you didn't hear part one, definitely invite you to go back and listen to the previous episode. That's number sixty-seven, where we talk about inflation. You want to give us a quick recap of that one, Brian? How we kind of what we covered in that inflation topic as we now turn the page to the rising uh, interest rates and the interest hikes in today's episode. Yeah, sure. I mean, we we came up with the title the Bermuda Triangle because we we really have the confluence of three different factors uh, or forces hitting us right now, and uh, the first one was inflation. Yes, you know, so we we did a fairly deep dive into that last time and talked about how that impacts portfolios and uh, what reactions you you could potentially take uh, in an inflationary environment. But then that leads to, uh, when you have a, a, an inflationary environment, that leads the Federal Reserve and, and policymakers to want to bring inflation back down. And so they have certain tools available to them to do that. And so the one we're going to be talking about is interest rates, you know, rising and lowering of, of interest rates to to basically control money supply and, and stimulate or or slow down economic activity. And then what usually comes after that, because it, it's so hard, to, there's so many variables, it's so hard to control this perfectly, more often than not, steady rises in interest rates will usually trigger, they'll overshoot and they'll trigger a recession. So we're, we're looking at kind of a slow moving series where, where you get this inflationary influence, the the Fed and, and policymakers take action, and then hopefully... Uh, the recession and and the the slowdown that we get isn't too you know damaging to to the economy. So we're in the middle of that with uh, rising interest rates. 
interest rates then become the next big topic to discuss. And then, um, you know, of course, we're going to have a, a part three of this. Where we're going to talk about that threat of recession. That'll be kind of the next thing. And looking at how all of this is interconnected, certainly as well. But where do you want to take things in terms of the rising interest rates? Because I feel like along with inflation, this has now been something sort of starting to dominate, maybe not dominate the news cycle, but we're hearing more and more about the, the threat of it and how frequent it's going to happen this year and all those kinds of things. Yeah. Well, uh, let me start by taking you back oh, almost 100 years. Obviously, the late 1920s, we had the- Back, back to a better time. But, well, I don't know if it was, this was a better time or not. <clears throat> yeah, it, Maybe not, the roaring not, not 20s Not that kind of story. Not that kind of story. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to come on the other side of, of the boom. Uh, so the roaring 20s were fantastic, and the market got bid up you know, exorbitantly. There, there were some structural problems with people being able to borrow money and things like that that- uh, pushed stock valuations higher, which you could find some parallels to that today. But the the stock market crash, most people believe that that's what caused the Great Depression. And the reality is, is it was actually restrictive monetary policy. They 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 were recovering, they were doing some stimulus to try and you know get the economy going. And once they were having some success with that, policymakers got overly concerned about inflation and they you know dialed back the the, the monetary stimulus and and it actually put us into the great depression which you know, what, what did it take to get us out of the great depression walter do you remember uh a war right yeah world war ii mm-hmm. and and it was basically the and if you've listened to any of the the podcast on modern monetary theory this idea that the government can just print and spend money to to stimulate the economy. We're in love with that idea now, but at the time it was it was kind of um, it wasn't practiced as consciously, but because of the war, we had to borrow a, a massive amount of money. We had to stimulate wartime production. And a lot of that was going into, you know, military endeavors which you could argue probably aren't aren't the most productive for society, but uh, winning World War II was very necessary, obviously, but we got to the point where we had reached 125% government debt relative to gross domestic product. Well, that's uh, we're at 125% now. The, the stimulus, the spending, uh, and and the sudden lurch in in uh, economic and and productivity output got us out of the Great Depression, and. I think it was a lesson for policymakers that, hey, this monetary stimulus inject, you know, just pumping money into to the system to get a slow or uh, stagnant economy going worked. And now because it works so well, we use it for everything. You know, the, the dot-com bubble, the financial crisis, the coronavirus, all of those things, we just, you know, the government stepped in and pumped trillions of dollars into the economy. And and to be fair, it rescues and turns the economy around and, and it works. It actually very really does uh you know save a lot of agonizing that comes from austerity, trying to, you know, work things out a more traditional way because the dollar's so strong, because the federal government has such a good uh, reputation and and can issue money without just debate totally debasing the currency. It's a good thing. But when you use it for every single problem and then don't ever come back to mop up behind you, 
it leaves too much money into the system. That's what causes inflation. Again, we, we talked about all that last time. So bottom line is, is that the Federal Reserve controls money supply by adjusting short-term interest rates, bond and securities buying and selling. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. And then uh, you know, down the road, there, there's, there's another tool for controlling inflation or taking money back out of the system, and that's taxes. That's something that Congress has to do. But basically, these are the tools we're looking at. These are the, the actions that we're going to need to see from policymakers to pull back in all of this money that was pumped into the system uh, because of COVID. And it, it was roughly about a third of all dollars out there. Were, were printed and injected into the system in, in the last two years. So it, it's, wow. it's no big surprise. That's kind of a inflation. staggering number, isn't it? It really is, yeah. Hmm. You want to explain a little bit more about what you mentioned there, uh, the, the different ways that they're manipulating uh, those different levers and, and pulling those levers? Yeah, well, so first of all, the idea that the Fed totally controls interest rates is maybe another misconception. The Federal Reserve can set and control the, the rate for overnight funds between banks, right? So that when the Fed says rates are going to be 25 basis points, half a percent, 1%, banks, they have to settle up their balance sheet at the end of the day so that they have enough cash on hand to match the number of loans that they make. And if they have an excess of cash or a shortage of cash, banks put money out on the uh, the, the Fed funds market and, and they can, uh, at the end of each day, settle up their balance sheets. So the Federal Reserve can control this rate, which then impacts the bank's ability to access more cash, make more loans. And I don't want to dive you know, too deep into, into the technicalities of it, but suffice it to say, if you want to make money more available, you make it less expensive, right? So, so you give the banks cheap money, they can make cheaper, cheap loans and, and still maintain that profit margin. Well, all of that borrowing that gets encouraged. Corporations can go borrow. Individuals can go borrow, buy houses, uh, take out credit lines, you know, maybe do uh, home improvements or, or trips, whatever they need to spend money on. When money's cheaper, it's easier to borrow. Well, when you want to slow things down, you raise rates and then that makes borrowing more expensive. Uh, it, it actually encourages saving because now, unlike the last decade where you've earned nothing on cash, well, if you can get a decent rate on money market or CDs, that may encourage you to hang on to your money as opposed to spending it uh, more aggressively. So this is the primary tool that the Federal Reserve has historically utilized, you know, raising and lower interest rates to, to stimulate or slow the economy. And, uh, you know, it, it has repercussions up and down the economy and and then impacts other people's behavior. Uh, if it costs you more to borrow money, the project that you're embarking on or the investment that you're making has to have a higher return expectation because your cost of capital is going up. So all of these things interplay and you've got two sides to the coin. You've got savers and you've got you know borrowers. And you know, so whether rising rates is good news or bad news, Depends on what what side of that equation that you're on. 
Yeah, and uh, both sides want to win in in each transaction, right? In each dynamic, and but uh, it's kind of hard to find that that winnable solution for both sides every single time. I would imagine. So it's a kind of a mix of strategies from the past, and then trying to inject some new ideas into all of this as well. And that seems like it's going to create um, kind of an interesting couple of months, or maybe even years, to see how all of this sort of works out. Yeah, yeah, I think we're looking at at many months of, or many Fed meetings. They meet six times a year, so we're we're looking at several cycles of raising rates anywhere from a quarter percent to a half a percent. Uh, there's talk of taking short term rates up to two, maybe even three percent over the next year and a half to to two years, and you know that's a that's a huge increase from where we're at now. We'll talk about what that does to your securities, your bond prices, your stock prices, your money market, and all that stuff here in a minute, but. And let me just throw one other thing out there that, that, that the Federal Reserve can do. Uh, and this is a new tool. And so you talk about interest rates being an old tool. The new tool is to buy and sell bonds. And you think about what, what does that have to do with, with money supply? But if the Federal Reserve wants to take money out of the system, it will sell bonds and collect cash from investors. And that actually takes free cash out of the economy. And the Federal Reserve will just sit on it. Vice versa, if they want to stimulate the economy, they'll go buy bonds. And that injects cash back onto the balance sheets of whoever was was holding the bonds. So that that's a new tool. It's it maybe is a little more complex, but just want to let you know that there, there are other tools besides interest rates that they'll that they'll use. And which is good because they don't have to be totally dependent on dramatically increasing rates or dramatically cutting rates to to get the same effect. So that's where we start seeing them use all these different little mini levers rather than just kind of one big, massive change. Yeah. And that's a good thing because it doesn't put all the pressure on interest rates. Or or all on just one solution to be the magic bullet. Correct. Correct. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. And and then the Fed really is trying to hit a target inflation rate of about 2%. 2% where there's a nice equilibrium. Equity markets tend to perform the best. Uh, inflation is there a little bit, so it encourages people to, you know, buy and spend and not just bury their money in a mason jar in the backyard, you know, but by the same token, if inflation gets too high, people hurry up and spend their money because they want to, you know, it's going to be less valuable in the future. And so the, the velocity of money, the rate at which it changes hands can get too high. So all of these things, uh, again, you're trying to work to, together and, and, strike the perfect balance, which, you know, is, is very, very hard to do. We're talking about, again, this sort of uh, three-part series we're in the midst of as we discuss the Bermuda Triangle of Retirement. This is that part two, interest hikes and how that plays into the equation. Uh, Brian walking us through these conversations. So, Brian, you want to dive in a little bit further here and look at this issue of rising inflation rates and, and how it works and some of the different uh, kind of nuances that people should be aware of? Yeah, well, I mean, just to sum that all up, you know, basically we're looking at a situation that is fairly unique because, and it's going to be interesting to watch how this all unfolds because for the past decade, and and arguably too, there was a, a slight increase in rates right before the financial crisis, but we have been in a near zero rate environment, you know, for the better part of ten years. So that that's kind of an unusual situation. We even saw negative have and have seen negative rates in the global markets too. So it's going to be interesting to see how we maneuver out of this. And if we can get back to something, 
you know, more, you know, quote unquote, normal or historically normal. But as I said, the Fed is, is set to, to raise rates. They do this when the economy is you know, too hot. And you know, clearly, high inflation is, is the indicator that the economy is too hot, low, low unemployment, uh, all, all those kinds of things. All, all those signs are here. Add on top of that, the supply chain issues, the pandemic uh, you know, tapering off that we, we've dealt with the last couple of years. Now, of course, Russia, you know, going into Ukraine, upsetting energy prices and and, and global supply chains further. So, um, what what I'm telling people to do is look at this one of a couple of ways. Are you actively going to try to respond to this, or do you have a more passive approach? Well, many of us in our 401ks, we you know, the target date funds, you've heard of target date funds where you, you basically pick the date that you want to retire or the year that you're going to retire. And then over time, that fund will adjust you know, to become more conservative and uh, as you vector in, into retirement. Well, that means those target date funds, they're typically very passively managed. They buy you know, a lot of indexes. And package it all up into in one secure. It's, and you're getting a lot of bonds in those as you get closer to retirement. So you may want to say the target date or passive indexes that funds that I have in my portfolio. Maybe you want to switch to an active strategy. And and I like to do this with bond funds because uh, you can go buy the passive index and you know the AGG, the Lehman Aggregate Index, and get a a broad uh, mix of treasuries, corporates, and, and mortgage-backed securities, but it's very static. There's nothing actively being done to manage interest rate risk. And so as rates go up, bond prices go down. And when they go up from these very low levels, a 1% or 2% increase may be a 50 or 100% increase in the existing rates. That can devastate bond prices. So getting an active manager that can take strategies to manage interest rate risk. You know, they can do bond swaps, they can do uh, hedging and, and future strategies on interest rates. And th this is fairly difficult to do. It's not something I would recommend an individual investor do, but the way you can do that is to sell your passive index funds and buy an actively managed bond fund. And you know, the flip side of that is if you want to be totally passive, well, you bought these bond funds, they're paying a dividend, the dividend's been going down, but the bond prices have been going up. But over time, the bonds that are in a, well, both an active and a passive fund, some will mature, and then they will reinvest the proceeds. And so if you just let the bonds that you've owned do their thing, pay their dividends, they mature at, at par, and then they can reinvest you know, the proceeds into new bonds. So there, there's some merit so long as you don't need the cash or, or the, the value of those in the short term, you know, there's some merit to just, you know, sticking with the passive and, and let them, let them do their thing. Where you, that gets to be troublesome in, in a rising rate environment is if you have very long-term bonds. So I would keep it as short to intermediate term bonds, maybe some adjustable rate bonds, or an active manager that can help uh, manage these, you know, and, and predict what's going to happen with these these interest rates and take take steps to to manage it. The final thing, if you have new money, say you just sold a piece of real estate or you're you got an inheritance, whatever it is, if you're looking to go into bonds, 
for their safety, I would hold off for a little while. For, for people who sat on some cash and waited and investing now, you know, you're getting a much better yield. That can continue through you know this year. Now, you don't want to try to time it perfectly. You don't want to you know, try and outsmart it. So if you've got new money, I would put, you know, maybe break it up into four or five chunks of money and then dollar cost average. You know, buy a few bonds now, buy a few in a couple months, a couple months, and, and get your money to work prudently that way. So you start seeing all these threads of how rising interest rates start to have an impact on every section of the financial industry from bonds to stocks and then, you know, REITs and even even our cash, right, gets impacted by all this. Yeah, yeah. So, so let me talk about stocks for for just a minute. And you know, there are some stocks that are more drastically impacted by rising rates and and inflation. You know, these these again go hand in hand. And so some of your more sensitive stocks ironically are your most aggressive and your most, some of your most conservative. So your growth stocks, well if if the earnings of a company are further in the future and our cost of capital, our, our interest rates are going up, you have to value future earnings differently. And so what you've seen happen already is tech stocks, growth stocks, anything on the more aggressive end of the spectrum has been beat up badly. I would argue that you know that's still going to be a, a area of considerable growth. And I, I would use this pullback actually to buy some of these growth stocks because the, the valuations there uh, have have come back in line you know very nicely even in the light of of rising rates at the other end of the spectrum you've got your very conservative utilities your high dividend paying stocks you know maybe some of the telecom companies would qualify as this and i would say this if you buy uh, utility stocks those dividends are very very safe you you could continue to rely on a good quality uh, utility. Uh, I happen to use Southern Company a, a good bit. Entergy is down here is a great company. And I would I would say you're very safe collecting the dividends. What could be impacted is, as energy costs are going up, as borrowing costs are going up, uh, utilities are very big users of debt. And you know, obviously the their input costs go up. Well, changing their rates is a very political, almost legal process. And so the dividend growth may slow and you may see a stagnation or a pullback in their share price. And not permanently, not, that's not going to be, it's not like it's, it's a terrible investment, but just, just be mindful whether you're going for the growth or you're going for the, the safety end. Rising rates does have an impact on both ends of the spectrum. And the same is true of, of REITs, real estate investment trusts. For some of the same reasons that I mentioned about the cost of borrowing, if you're looking to buy a new house or a new commercial office building and money now costs more to borrow, well, maybe the price that you pay for that has to come down so that you can afford the payment. And you see a lot of this with you know, first home, time home buyers, younger home buyers. They don't have as much cash. They have to borrow more money to, to make the purchase. Well, you know, they're they're going to have to either buy a less expensive house or a lower price on on, on the house that was worth a little bit more uh, yesterday. So it, it'll be very interesting to interesting to see how it plays out for home prices, but but REITs in particular as an investment, great place for dividends, but realize there's a lot of 
interest rate sensitivity there as well. So we've got big implications on stocks, bonds. What else should we consider as we think about interest rates maybe rising and perhaps somewhat significantly this year? Going back to stocks, I think what you're looking at is stick with the defensive names, the high quality names. You've got a lot of consumer staples, even consumer durables, uh, food and and, uh, consumer product type companies. They, They can typically raise prices. Uh, they're not regulated like in uh, utilities. Their earnings are now, not in the future, like tech companies. And so, if you if you stick with your good quality uh, defensive type companies, I think those are going to be the ones that are probably the most reasonably valued uh, coming into this year. Uh, they've actually held up a lot better than growth stocks. They'll uh, and, and you'll get more you know current income from those. So that that that's where I'm tailoring portfolios uh, to deal with this. And then uh, you know, probably on your most conservative end of the portfolio, cash, right? It, it's everybody loves cash, but it's a bit of a catch twenty two right now. You, you've you've got this need to avoid a decline in bond prices. Uh, you know, maybe rising rates in a recession could be negative for the market in the short term, intermediate term, and so you want to hold cash. Well, if inflation's high your purchasing power of your cash is going down. But if you go put it in the bank, you've been getting, you know, zero to uh, you know, maybe a half a percent on on money market in, in a few locations. Well, with rising rates, uh, you would expect that the yield that you would get on money market would be going up along with it. And, and it eventually it will uh, to some degree. But the problem we have right now is everybody is very cash heavy. The banks don't need a lot of extra cash. So we're not seeing the money market and CD rates catch up to what you know, the Fed fund rates are doing just yet. Uh, that, that could potentially change. So don't hold too much cash. Don't, don't sit on massive amounts of cash just trying to you know, time the market or avoid something negative because over time, this will pass. You're, if you will map your need of cash and, and investments from your portfolio with the the timeline that you need it, well, you may need five years worth of cash. That that gives you enough reserve that you can ride through, you know, what what's going to happen over the two, three, five year time period and adjust accordingly. Then if you're light on cash, now may still be a good time uh, to trim some of the bonds or stocks out of your portfolio and really get refortified for cash for, for what could happen. But, you know, you, you really don't want to be holding massive amounts of cash. Like I said, unless it was a new cash infusion or something you've just come upon, use the next 12 to 18 months to dollar cost average. Make sure you've got, you know, the, keep, keep your emergency funds, keep your uh, rainy day funds if, if you need some to you know, have as your security blanket. But but develop a strategy around cash because I, I don't see it catching up as quickly as it should. And I think if you do it correctly, you can probably get a better return out of some conservative short intermediate term bonds than you, know, you would do better there than you would with, with cash. Very good. And it just sounds like we kind of need to stay on our toes for all of these different things that are sort of shifting underneath of us right now. Yeah, so many implications for all different aspects of your portfolio, your life, you know, the behaviors you're going to 
deploy over the, you know, what you're going to purchase, how big of items you're going to purchase. All of this is going to interplay. And, and hopefully the, you know, the federal reserve acts perfectly and we have this nice soft landing and then boom, you know, right back to, to some growth. And I'll, 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 I was reading an article by Jamie Dimon the other day, and, and he, he's optimistic that if you play this right, you can we can enjoy many more years of growth. But I'll, I'll read you this quote. Uh, he says, in our current situation, the Fed needs to deal with things it has never dealt with before and are impossible to model, including supply chain issues, sanctions, war, and a reversal of the quantitative easing. That's the bond buying I was talking about in the face of unparalleled inflation. Well, you sum that up and that's that's exactly what we're dealing with. And that's a complex and an interesting set of circumstances. So be defensive. Don't be too scared. Don't go crawl in a hole, but make sure you've got a plan that, that gets you through the next, you know, call it three to five years. All right. Very good. That's helpful to kind of get that understanding and uh, how will your process help accomplish all of this? Brian, can you give us maybe a few details about that? Yeah, well, we, you know, obviously we try to put together portfolios that endure over long cycles and, and, you know, manage for, for multiple, you know, ups and downs and, and, and variables for sure. We're not, we're not traders. We're not trying to time this, you know, so, so the idea of being overly active and making big bets uh, based on what the market may do today or tomorrow, that that's not our our thing. And and if you are sensible about it, a couple episodes ago we talked about the like the cash flow confidence formula. If you put together an asset allocation based on the part of your portfolio that you need, okay, because if you get a million dollars in in your retirement account, you don't need all million dollars in the next year. You need some five years from now, 10 years from now, heck, maybe 20 years from now. So if you match the assets to that time horizon, you can enjoy you know, many years of, of growth and position it so that you don't need to worry about what the market does in, in the short and intermediate term. You've got the cash flow confidence from good dividend stocks, cash reserves, some interest from, from bonds, uh, maybe some REITs kicking out some income get your pensions, your social security, you can build together a nice income plan that will survive and, and endure over time so that you don't need to worry about these these day-to-day fluctuations. It all starts with that plan, and that's why it's just so helpful to have an idea of where you stand, where you need to go, and then putting the pieces together for how you're going to get there. And that's something that Brian can certainly talk to you about. In fact, you can call today for a free 15-minute introductory call with Brian. See how you can get some clarity around your financial goals so that you can live the lifestyle that you want. Here are the best ways to set that up, make that happen for that free 15-minute call. Go to livingworth.com. That's livingworth.com and click on book a call. Or you can dial 706-451-9800. That's 706-451-9800. And also make sure that you come back for part three of our conversation. Brian will be turning the page to Bermuda Triangle of Retirement, part three about recessions and that threat that we face this year as well. And that'll be a good way to round out this series. Sounds very ominous. Mm, Yes, it does. Uh, (laughs) Will it actually have an ominous ending? Well, we'll find out and uh, talk about it on the next episode. Until then, Brian, thank you and uh, have a great week. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Let's go eat some pizza. And uh, we'll see everybody next time right back here on Make the Dough Rise. 
Make the Dough Rise is brought to you by Living Worth Wealth Advisors with a central office in Greensboro, Georgia, but serving the Lake Country and beyond. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all your favorite podcasting apps. Subscribe today and never miss an episode. Just search for Make the Dough Rise with Brian Doe. You can also visit MakeTheDoughRise.com to listen to recent episodes. If you'd like to contact the show or schedule a complimentary financial review with Brian and the team, just go to MakeTheDoughRise.com and get in touch through the website or call 706-451-9800. Thanks for listening to Make the Dough Rise. Investment advisory services offered through Main Street Financial Solutions, LLC. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed.